Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. There's a news story that uh, I'm imag- I imagine has caught your attention. And it's got a lot of us asking what the full story could be concerning a former RCMP officer by the name of William Miker. William Miker was arrested a week ago in Vancouver and charged with foreign interference. Miker was granted bail on Tuesday of this week. It's alleged in an RCMP news release that Miker, quote, used his knowledge and his extensive network of contacts in Canada to obtain intelligence or services to benefit the People's Republic of China, end quote. As well, it is alleged, quote, Miker contributed to the Chinese government's efforts to identify and intimidate an individual outside the scope of Canadian law, end quote. Now, these offenses are contained in the Security of Information Act. William Miker had on several occasions been a house guest of our next guest, former Globe and Mail editor and author of 22 Murders, that terrible murder spree in Nova Scotia, Paul Polango. Joins us on the Roy Green Show. How are you, Paul? Hey, I'm doing fine, Roy, and how are you? Good. It's good to talk to you again. How, how, does, uh, how did Dill Miker fit into the narrative of your book, uh, Dispersing the Fog? Because you wrote about him in 2006. Well, <clears throat> when I was writing Dispersing the Fog, one of the uh, things I was looking at or came to look at was... Uh, Chinese uh, espionage agent, agents operating in Canada. And then that turned me on to Project Sidewinder, which involved investigations into this. And uh, I was alerted that Bill Miker was a person who would know a lot about this. And he was, uh, I ended up meeting him, and he was a high flying. Um, in his time, in his 20-something years with the RCMP, he had the reputation of being one of the elite uh, policemen in the country. I mean, he was an inspector in the RCMP at a relatively young age. Um, you know, he, he was a super cop. They called him Wild Bill because he did undercover operations involving the Hells Angels, Colombian drug lords, fraud artists, you name it. And uh, Bill was the guy doing it. So, what is or was Bill Miker to you? He uh, he visited your you at your home on several occasions, and I believe, not that I'm spying on you, Paul, but he slept over at your house, did he not? Oh yeah, a couple of times. I mean, um, a funny thing was Bill Bill was there one time, and, and in 1988, I wrote a, uh, an article on the front page of the Globe and Mail about my grandfather from Hamilton who lived in Brightside. Um, turning 100 years old on Christmas Day, 1988. So Bill was reading uh, that article one day, sitting in our living room, and he goes, your grandfather came to Cape Breton with his cousin. Well, my mother's uncle has the same name as your grandfather's cousin. So the next thing you know, he calls his mother up on the phone, and it turns out it's the same person. So we're like shirt-tail relatives. Uh, <laughs> just one of those funny, funny moments. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, we went from there. We had a, you know, he'd be in, he was living in Hong Kong at the time. And, you know, occasionally we would communicate back and forth. I remember one time him calling me from the Hong Kong subway and saying, yeah, Paul, you got to move here. This is where all the action is. This is, this is, there's a lot going on here. And I said, Billy, I'm not, I'm not going to Hong Kong. I'll, I'll stay in Nova Scotia. So how did this fast rising RCMP officer wind up between Canada and China? Do you know? Well, what happened, you know, he got involved. There's a whole sort of industry to develop. No, I have to be somewhat careful about what we say because he's charged to the oh, serious crime. I, I know how to get you, you know, you know, the, you know the rules, you know the law. So he got, you know, there's a whole industry that developed in the 80s and 90s. You know, if, as police lost the ability to uh, investigate white-collar crime and other crimes, former policemen set themselves up in business along with forensic accounting firms to take over what the police were doing and charging megabucks to do it. So people got really rich really quickly. And Bill Miker was, uh, you know, uh, uh, he's a larger-than-life character, sort of a, almost a James Bond character in, minor, in, in real life. He got involved in this and started, and then he got hooked in with uh, uh, companies in Hong Kong, especially banking companies, and was doing security work for them. And uh, track, they ended up tracking down money all over the world uh, as this really uh, expensive, uh, highly functioning uh, undercover operator turned private investigator. So and then, mm -hmm. well, then, and I'll answer the next part for you. Sure. Then in 2016, this is a key moment that's not really discussed in the news reports of what happened with Bill Miker's arrest, is that in 2016, the Chinese government and the Canadian government signed an agreement. And that agreement meant that through that agreement, uh, money that was taken by fraud artists or thieves or any kind of uh, uh, nefarious activity, the perpetrators could not move to the other country and hide the money. That the, so the Chinese could reclaim money that was stolen in China and bring it back to China. Vice versa, Canada could do the same in China. And this put Miker in a very good position in Hong Kong because he could work both ways. He could recover assets for Canadians or recover assets for the Chinese. It's fairly dangerous work. Well, it is. And then what happened was, like, even in my book in 2008, I talk about Miker. One of the things I talk about, and, and Miker at the time was very disparaging of the RCMP, saying that they were disorganized and they couldn't do the kinds of investigation they should be doing. And one of the cases he was, he was working on involved a, a Chinese general who had uh, secreted money into Canada, and uh, he was trying to deal with this case at the time. I mean, it, it was a very sort of uh, just below the, the radar, high-profile case, and he was involved in that. But in recent years, he was involved in a case and I'm not, I'm not going to say it's the same case, but a similar sort of matter where someone uh, well-known in China 
had taken money and take, brought it to Canada. Micah, through this agreement in 2016, was going after that money, technically on behalf of the government of China, as per the agreement. That's my understanding. What happened in Canada, however, is that the bad guy, or the target of the investigation, we'll call it, he uh, used that money through an, uh, uh, an investor's program to buy citizenship in Canada and became a Canadian citizen while he, while he sort of uh, fought off any efforts by Miker and others to come after him. And a number of people were involved in this, not just Miker, but you see in the recent court filings, another former top um, RCMP investigator, Kim Marsh from Vancouver, and a couple of other people have been named as co-conspirators in this case. So they were all involved. There were all kinds of meetings involving lawyers, I understand. Not from Micra. I don't get this from Micra at all. I get there's other people I know. And so what happened was the tide turned and uh, the, 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 the person who was the target of the investigation started to complain that he was being stalked by these people. And an investigation was begun. And when Micra arrived in Canada, I guess a week ago Tuesday, he was hauled into Vancouver Airport by the RCMP. But the RCMP refused to charge him. Uh, they let him go. But again, my understanding through government sources is that CSIS was insistent that Micra be charged. Let me come back to Paul, um, to, uh, to Micra. Um, William Miker, Bill Miker, he arrives in Vancouver, and you said the RCMP, if I understood you correctly, the RCMP didn't arrest Miker or intend to charge him, but CSIS insisted. Do we have a blurring of the lines here? Yeah, well, there's always been friction between the RCMP and CSIS, and then some of this has been aggravated even more by the Cameron Ordis case, which has sort of disappeared into the legal system where the top RCMP uh, uh, civilian was caught leaking information to the bad guys around the world. And that case, I don't know where that stands right now, but it doesn't seem to be moving forward. And that's, and that's caused consternation around the world. Um, yeah, yeah, no, no. I'm just, I'm just thinking about how this develops. Micah must have had a sense of security about coming here. I suspect that Micah knew something was up. Uh, my intelligence tells me that uh, he, he, he could smell something was wrong, and he, and he had no trust whatsoever of, of Cecil. Uh, and, and he's not the only one in the world. I mean, you know, there's the five eyes, which are the intelligence agencies of the United States, England, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Uh, well, can, Canada has become the weak sister there, but not trusted. And for a number of reasons, mainly because of the, you know, you, you can basically boil it down to the politicization of all aspects of law enforcement, be, be it the RCMP and CSIS which is a counterintelligence agency. And um, my understanding is that Miker was very nervous uh, about things like this. And um, CSIS was operating at the behest of the government. So I think it's interesting to note that 
cease the, the charges against Biker were laid uh, last Thursday at the insistence of CSIS. And literally the next day or the day after, the attorney general, who Lametti, David Lametti, was booted out of office. So he would have been responsible and had to sign off on this. And now he's gone. So I think there's a lot going on here uh, below the surface, more than they're indicating. And then the other thing that that affect that that sort of catches my eye here for such a substantive charge for a guy who lives in Hong Kong, the bail was fifty thousand dollars plus a surety, uh, and uh, his passport was taken away. But it doesn't strike me as that just the bail alone doesn't strike me that there's a very strong case here in the opinion of the judge. What kind of guy? Uh... What kind of guy is he? He stayed at your house. What kind of personality is he? Uh, he he's a fun-loving, very uh, very adept at uh, being a chameleon and moving uh, among criminal elements. I mean, some of the people that he snared. One of the cases he he worked on in Operation Bermuda Short out of Miami with the FBI. They were using, and he told me this when he was sitting in my kitchen having dinner, or my dining room having dinner, that um, he told Sharon and me that, you know, I was doing this investigation and we were using the same boat they'd used previously in the famous Abscam investigation. And I had to explain to the bad guys who would recognize the boat that, oh, no, we got it cheap. Uh, you know, because after the government used it, we were able to buy it. And, and then he sold that story that it wasn't a government boat, but it actually absolutely was an FBI boat. You know, yeah, so that's, he, he has that <laughs> to think quickly, to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see how this uh, moves forward. And and uh, thank you for alerting me to the fact that, you know, this guy and uh, Appreciate you coming on the show. Always, always enjoy the conversations. Well, anytime. And, and um, you know, there, there's one other aspect here, Roy, that what we're seeing here is, you know, I said earlier that Bill Baker got involved in this kind of work back after he left the RCMP in the, you know, the uh, 2000. And I, I've got 30 seconds, so, Paul. I've got 30 yeah, seconds. Well, t- 10 seconds. Well, what has happened is the, the police have abrogated their responsibilities to do these kinds of investigations involving commercial crime. So now we have ex-policemen who are basically penetrating the system and penetrating the government system as well and finding out confidential information. I think that's part of this as well. And we'll see if that comes out. Economy-related headlines over the past few days concerning Canada's current economic reality. From Global News, this headline, Economy hit sharp reversal in June. What this means for the Bank of Canada, another global news headline, Bank of Canada prepared to raise rates further if inflation progress stalls. Globe and Mail editorial board, Canada's economy is stagnating. We must acknowledge this new unpleasant reality. And in the United States, the Fed raised its short-term interest rate to 5.3%, which is the highest since 2001. Um... And they say that it may lead to uh, higher mortgage rates, auto loans, credit card interest rates, and higher business borrowing costs. No surprise there. So where are we now and what should we be preparing for 
With a huge shortage of housing and rents also increasing massively across this country, food increasing, as we just talked to John Wright about, our great friend Professor Eric Cam, macroeconomics professor at Toronto Metropolitan University, joins us. You know, uh, Eric, when I uh, when I sent you the um, the first invite to be on the show this weekend, and thank you for always agreeing to do it, uh, there was one there was one economics headline, and then they just started pouring in. So we chose a good week. Let me just start with uh, with 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 this thing out of the gate, and this is from Craig Lord, Global News. Bank of Canada prepared to raise rates further if inflation progress stalls. The Bank of Canada policymakers said they are still prepared to raise their benchmark interest rate further, even as they hiked rates to their highest level in 22 years earlier this month. What do we say? Well, first of all, Roy, the honor is always mine to come on, so I appreciate it. And what you're getting is that. Craig's giving you kind of an overview of where we are right now. And there's no surprise that the Bank of Canada is talking about, whispering about another rate hike because they want another rate hike. They're not finished. They've made it very clear where their target is. It's 2%. We are not at 2%. And so they are going to do the only thing that they can do when they meet again in September. And my guess is raise it another 0.25%. Now, I was Twittered this week, Roy, which is really relevant to someone saying, aren't all things equal? Like when when one thing goes up, doesn't everything go up? So we did a little math crunching here this week when I had a few minutes on my hands. And I wanted people to know that in the last year, wages in Canada are up almost 1%. 1% across the country. The interest rate, the prime lending rate, is up 1,900%. That's 1,900 from 0.25 to 5. Now, I don't know anybody whose wages have gone up 1,900% in the last year. So I think what Mr. Lord is writing is a very accurate portrayal of where we are. Pretty much everything is either leveled or down, with the exception of the housing market, which we know is quite down and only has one more way to go when those 80% of Canadians renegotiate their mortgage. So we can talk about business spending. We can talk about business investment. We can talk about whatever you want, Roy, it's your show. But the answer is, is that Canada is heading into a recession. Yeah. Let me quote from that uh, that excellent piece on Global News again. The Central Bank Governing Council's consensus in July, so this month, was that leaving the key policy rate unchanged at 4.75% would risk stalling the progress it had made in tamping down price increases, which has so far seen annual inflation cool to a low of 2.8% from a high of 8.1% last year. Are they on the mark or are they just, is this just wishful dreaming? Um, What it is, is a little bit of pen and teller magic, because what they're telling people is that if you look at real gross domestic product, it's still going up. And so as long and, and at a pretty good pace by their calculations. So they are worried about resulting spending going up and then inflation being pushed up and all of those things. The uh, 
But to take the veil off that argument, if you want to go by a, a better statistic, uh, our population is rising and it's not just immigration, it's rising in general. So um, it's funny how they, StatsCan and the Bank Canada like to often quote real GDP per capita, real GDP per person. Uh, but right now they don't, because if they did, real GDP per person is at about zero. So that those increases in goods and services being produced in our country over a given year in our dollars um, is overrated. And that's really what they are. I mean, that's the foundation of these interest rate increases. And so if they were going to quote how we're doing in, in, in quote unquote, real per capita terms, that argument for why we're going to raise rates uh, disappears quickly. But you know, people only have at their disposal what they can, what they have, and they're citing the statistic that works well for them. This is an old trick, Roy, and it's a fun one. You know, it's like citing the unemployment rate when it favors your argument and not stating other statistics that don't. And you know what? It's, I'm not even blaming them. This is the world's oldest, oldest profession in terms of economics. Use the statistics that support your argument. So that's where we are, Roy, right now. We're, we're at a time of of, in, in my opinion, impending doom. I think that the uh, I think that people are saying it's going to flatline or you know be at zero percent. No, I think we're heading for recession because, as I've said before, I think the bottom is about to fall out of the housing market. I'm on record for saying that, and I also think that that inflation has not truly hit the labor market yet. And I think those two things are inevitable. And I think when they do, we're going to see a real Canadian recession but we're not there yet Roy so do these um, policymakers I have a question for you about the policymakers in a minute but do these policymakers really understand the large majority of Canadians who are struggling we know that most Canadians and polling has told us this repeat repeated polling most Canadians are within a few hundred dollars of not being able to pay their basic bills. So you can talk big and grandiose numbers, but for the average person who's just trying to get through the day, pay the bills, feed the kids, close the kids, feed themselves, clothe themselves, you know, do what you have to do to keep yourself afloat. What does all of this mean to that Canadian? That Canadian's in big trouble. And I've been talking about this on your show for a I know, long you see, time. You used the term blood in the streets last time. That's exactly what I said, blood in the streets. And I think it's coming. And it's the part of this story that confuses me. Because I am a social scientist. And I'm supposed to know something about behavior. And that's the part that really stumps me right now is look at these numbers about people that are one paycheck away from insolvency. Look at the bankruptcy statistics that are going up. Look at the number, look at the numbers on business investment, which are plummeting day by day. And the number of people, remember, they haven't walked away from their houses yet, although I think they're going to, but businesses are walking away from their inventories. They're walking away from their warehouses because they can't pay their rent. And so I always thought that government was elected by the people, for the people, of the people, whatever prepositional phrase you want that ends in people. And I'm starting to wonder what the mission is of our federal government. I don't quite know who they're supporting right now. And if 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 the answer to that question isn't the family 
that is only marginally surviving. And you know, you have your favorite expression about the definition of inflation, and I have my new favorite expression, which is luxuries like food and clothes and a roof. And if you're not if you're not in it to help those people, to help increase the disposable income of those families, then I really don't know what you're doing. And so I echo you, Roy, because I, I don't know I don't know who this federal government is out to help. I it's absolutely beyond me. So let me come back to the question before the break. Who are these Bank of Canada policymakers? Who are they? How do they get the job? Well, they're a very well-educated group. Um, many of them, um, as you move up the ladder, I mean, you were right, Mr. Macklem, Dr. Macklem is the governor, but there's a seven-person governing council, and they're made up of people that almost entirely, if not entirely, have PhDs in economics or finance or assorted areas like that. Those positions you ascend to basically by promotion and those are appointments. The way you start at the Bank of Canada is like anybody else, Roy, you apply for a job coming out of grad school. Um, I'll be completely honest with you. I applied for a job at the Bank of Canada and I gave a paper at the Bank of Canada and it was a wonderful experience. I obviously chose to go into the university sector, but it's not a question of of education. Uh, these are very smart people. I've never met anybody at the bank that I thought was um, not actually very, very, very intelligent and very plugged in to monetary theory, macroeconomics. These are, and in fact, it's the best research center in the country. I, but I think to uh, where you're getting at with your question, and I don't blame you, is is going well. Are, are, what do they know that we don't know? And I don't think it's a matter of that. I think it's just a matter of uh, everybody has a policy and everybody has a mandate, everybody in the public sector. And the mandate of the Bank of Canada is to get to 2% inflation. And so I think that they are, uh, in a sense, to be commended, if I can use that term lightly, that they're pulling in the same direction, that they're given the direction and the leadership from their boss. And, and whether it's the executive council, the governing council, or or the or the you know the the rank and file members they are all you know singing from the same hymn book as they say and they are going to move toward this two percent inflation rate and they are not going to stop until they get there um, as the old expression goes Roy come hell or high water and let's just hope we're there soon I mean if that really is their mission if they've decided that we're going to get to two percent and the other economic milestones be damned. Well, let's just hope, Roy, that we we get there soon. Okay, so let me just, uh, again, quote Mr. Lord's story. Central bank's policymakers said that Canada's labor market continues to show signs of tightness, and this is what I'm concentrating on, and household savings are still above pre-pandemic levels, which is continuing to fuel excess demand in the economy. This is at the same time that we have a majority of Canadians, I'll go back to this, telling pollsters they're within a few hundred bucks of not being able to pay their monthly bills. How do these two positions, points reconcile? That's an excellent question. I would love to see this data. Maybe I can get in touch with Mr. Lord and find out where these numbers are coming from. Because as far as I can tell, this pent up demand and and this massive reserve of liquidity uh i can't find it i don't see it unless again we're looking at the statistics that they want you to see and maybe in a certain area or a certain stratified sample of the population 
there are people with savings on hand. But I number one, I would like to see it. Uh, but number two, even if it is there, it's you know it's predicated upon a, a labor market that's been extremely strong. And as we've said before, Roy, if if these inflationary numbers hit the labor market, um, then you know God only knows what happens then when these people that are two hundred dollars away from insolvency start losing their jobs. I mean, this is the scary part to me. So my answer is again, it's kind of like the very first couple of things we talked about. I can, you know, I can kind of show you statistics to support whatever we want to support. That's why I like coming on your show, because I just support a Mr. and Mrs. Taxpayer. So I don't know how you justify that unless the answer is it's a it's a very small proportion of the population that has this kind of pent up liquidity. Because if you look at the entire population, they don't, province, they don't. country, I don't see it. No, neither do I. And so you can say all that all, all, all day long. It doesn't change the reality that a majority of Canadians have told pollsters and repeatedly over a period of time, they don't have any money. They're down to the last couple of hundred bucks. We're down to our last 60 seconds. Are you expecting another Bank of Canada interest rate next month? Yeah, in September, yes. I think they're going to go September. full Monty and they're going to go another 0.25 uh, because I see... I'm trying to put my head into the space of a Bank of Canada uh, policymaker, especially on the executive committee, and their results, what they want to see, their little sliver of the economy tells them they're going in the right direction. So it's full speed ahead. They have no reason to stop at this point if what they want to do is to get that number to two and a half. So two to two, two to two and a half. So yeah, I fully expect one more increase before the end of 2023. And then we'll talk about what that, because the bottom line is, Roy, you can keep raising that rate as far as you want. I mean, you know, but at what, but the big rule of macroeconomics is what goes up must come down and something has to give. And right now the bank's not concerned with the what has to give argument, but you can rest assured you and me and the people of Canada are going to wait to see exactly what has to give when that 2% is achieved. So if you remember Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Alan Hynek, who is the head of Project Blue Book, had a lot to do with that film. And I interviewed him at the time the movie came out. And I said, how close to reality is it? And he said, a lot closer than you might think, Mr. Green, a lot closer than you might think. All right. So UFOs or UAPs and alien life forms recovered. The U.S. Congressional Oversight Committee heard witnesses' accounts earlier this week, including that the United States has alien craft and alien biological material. And very active on this file is uh, Tennessee Republican Congressman Tim Burchett. He, uh, he's been pushing for this, this hearing. It's the second one in, in relatively recent history in uh, looking at whether or not the aliens are here, um, whether they're among us whether we have their craft and are reverse engineering them. Let's talk to Chris Rutkowski, Canadian science writer who's written extensively on UFOs and related subjects. Uh, Chris has degrees in science and education. He's the author of, among other books, When They Appeared, Falcon Lake, 1967, The Inside Story of a US, uh, UFO Close Encounter. Chris, why, why before Congress again? Why? Well, that's a really good question, and uh, it has a lot to do with with public pressure, 
certainly some people within uh, the United States government, some of the uh, bureaucrats and uh, other officials, uh, have been, you know, listening to their constituents. Uh, and there's a public outcry uh, for more information. And these stories have been circulating around. I mean, they're, none of these stories are new. As a matter of fact, everything that was told, with the exception of the, the eyewitness report from, uh, from one of the, the witnesses. But uh, the other stories, you know, crash saucers, uh, alien bodies, cover-ups, uh, all that sort of stuff, We've been hearing that since the 1950s, so a lot of that is is sort of old hat. But the difference is now that it's got the attention of some of the big wigs in Washington, uh, and there's been some really serious charges leveled about the misappropriation of funds towards studying UAP and so forth. You know, Congress now has to uh, take a stand and look into this uh, a little more seriously. Mm-hmm. And 57%, according to Newsweek magazine and their polling, 57% of respondents, quote-unquote, believe that the government has more information about UFOs and alien life than it publicly shared. 21% and they didn't think that was the case. 22% and they didn't know. Uh, who's David Grush? David Grush, he, he is a... Former intelligence officer, he worked uh, actually on uh, one of the early programs a number of years ago uh, within the Pentagon, looking into the subject of uh, unidentified aerial phenomena, a particular task force. And uh, he said, basically, while he was in there, uh, people were telling him in confidence about uh, some of these stories, crash saucers and bodies and so forth. Talked to many pilots, talked to many people um, uh, who uh, were insisting that these stories were true, um, and yet uh, they were not part of uh, the official line. Pentagon's uh, still saying things along the lines of, you know, we don't see any verifiable evidence of, of these stories. He disagreed, uh, and when uh, his position was over, uh, he went public, and he actually went public more than a year ago. Uh, at a number of UFO conventions and so forth, and uh, got uh, got some of the um, UFO personalities who are popular on TV right now uh, to pay attention. And, uh, you know, the consequence was that he gave a presentation before uh, a, the House uh, Oversight Committee, not Congress itself, but a House Oversight Committee subcommittee uh, on the subject of what he's heard. So so what's going to, what's going to happen now? I mean, we had that... Congressional committee hearing some months ago. I can't remember whether it was a year or more, but it was fairly recent. And they were showing film, which most of us have seen, video from uh, fighter planes from U.S. aircraft carriers, filming what looked like Tic Tacs, that's the way they're described, just whizzing by them as though the jets were standing still and uh, just disappearing in the ocean and coming right back out again and it was a kind of the kind of video that really got my interest, particularly when you hear the uh, the voices of the fighter pilots. They were really excited at what they were seeing. How much credibility do you put in all of this? Well, the video certainly is impressive. There's no question it is. That. It really is. The problem is we don't have a lot of the background. I mean, the the, the audio you hear actually doesn't match uh, what some of the uh, the pilots were reporting. That was actually uh, they've spliced it a little bit together there, but. Um, there's no question the video is interesting, and the report from uh, the, the eyewitness report from David Fravor, one of the pilots. You know, he said this basically this thing flew from the uh, ocean up uh, past his aircraft and was traveling very quickly. Um, you know, these are pilots uh, who you know they have uh, a number of flying hours under their belt. You know, 
And uh, he, he agreed that a number of other pilots have confided in him. And many pilots have, you know, not just a few flying hours, but tens of thousands of flying hours. They should know what's going on in the sky. And mm-hmm. these are reputable observers. You know, in, in, you know we place our, our lives into the, uh, into the hands of pilots every day. And if pilots are reporting seeing things that uh, they shouldn't, uh, you know, that should be of concern to us, even from a safety perspective. Yeah. But we also had an Apollo astronaut who said, uh, you know, he saw them. And then wasn't there a case of one of the Apollo flights where they f- had film of something that was happening outside the spacecraft? And when they came home with the film, it disappeared. Nobody ever saw it again. Actually, there's a number of stories floating around. And unfortunately, most of the stories kind of dissipate when you try tracking them down. There's something about how they were when they were on the moon. Neil Armstrong made a comment about something just coming over the mountain or something like that, and and uh, you know that that turned out to be false. But a number of astronauts have seen objects zipping by them, uh, and a lot of those turn out to be you know, bits of previous spacecraft or from the the housing uh, and the manifolds and things that are just flying around outside the spacecraft. But you know there are many, and actually, if you talk to Chris Hatfield or any of the other uh, astronauts that we're familiar with from Canada, they'll say no, there's you know, there's no, you know, uh, nothing to the whole UFO thing. And yet we do know that we do have reports from reliable witnesses. Even here in Canada, Transport Canada has a uh, category of uh, of incident reports called UFO, not not UAP like they're saying in the States in Congress, but we actually call them UFOs here. And pilots do report uh, those things to Transport Canada all the time. Um, and... Uh, you know, again, you know, if if there's a problem with the instrumentation, the radar is wonky, or uh, the the uh, the collision alert system is not working properly, and the pilots are seeing things that aren't there in any of those situations, I think it's important that we get to the bottom of what exactly is being seen, and that's just the pilots. We have somewhere between 700 and 1,000 reports of uh, UAP or UFOs filed in Canada every year. And just over uh, the past 30 years or so, we have more than 25,000 reports. Uh, and a small percentage of those, not not all of them, but a very small percentage, are cases that don't seem to be stars and planets and satellites and planes and that type of thing. Um, that doesn't mean that the aliens are here, but it just means that uh, this is, these are things that we have to look at. And the difference is that uh, in the United States... What David Grush and a few others are saying is that, no, there actually are bits and pieces, or in some cases intact, uh, vehicles or craft or whatever you want to call them, that have been recovered by the Pentagon and are squirreled away somewhere. And some, there's even some suggestion that some aerospace companies have pieces of them. And if Bristol is listening right now, let us know, please. Okay. Um, tell us, please, a, a little bit about uh, about your book, When They Appeared, Falcon Lake. 1967, story of a UFO close encounter. Yeah, you know, Canada has had many fascinating stories uh, that have been very thoroughly investigated. In fact, uh, there was a report in 1967 um, that was presented to uh, uh, the Chief of Defense Staff for Canada's then Defense Minister, uh, where they looked at, uh, you know, a half dozen really good cases that were thoroughly investigated, baffled, uh, in the National Defense at that time and the RCMP. One of them happened uh, in in Manitoba, uh, 1967, May the 21st, as a matter of fact, uh, where a fellow was doing some prospecting. He just happened to be a, 
uh, a, uh, a fan of rocks. <laughs> he liked collecting rocks. And he was uh, sort of off the beaten track in the bush, saw what can only be described as a Hollywood-style flying saucer that appeared to land on a flat uh, flat area not too far from him. Uh, he walked up to it. Uh, uh, he touched the side of it. He burned his, his glove. A blast of hot gas shot out of this thing when it took off, set his clothes on fire, set fire to some leaves and pine needles and that type of thing, and took off. And... Uh, no, he was examined by a number of doctors uh, at uh, emergency uh, in the emergency room. He was examined by um, Canadian Forces doctors at a uh, Canadian Forces base, um, and uh, there was radiation found at the site. You know, pretty all, pretty much all the stuff that you see on TV shows and in movies happened here in Canada, and it was investigated in detail, uh, very thoroughly by the RCMP and National Defence. And both those uh, agencies said that there is no way to explain what had happened based on the evidence. That's amazing. And, you know, what do you do with cases like that? I don't know. Uh, it's, I, I, I really don't know. Here. I mean, people sometimes are afraid to say anything. I've heard, I've talked to pilots, uh, airline pilots, who have said, oh, no, 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 you're not getting me to talk about that. Not even just one-on-one -on -one with you. I'm not doing it. And so I say to them, so obviously you've seen something. Or you'd say no, and they say, we're not going to talk to you about it, end of story. <laughs> so, I mean, I draw my own conclusions. Uh, in 10 seconds or less, what are, what are your thoughts, Chris? Do you think yes, no? I think that uh, there's enough evidence the science community has to take a harder look at this, and especially with what's coming out now, uh, it's worthwhile taking a look. Let's get to the bottom of it, one way or another. I want to talk now to uh, Tasha Carradine, who uh, wrote an op-ed in the National Post. She's a columnist with the Post, broadcaster, of course, as well. Tasha wears many hats. The, uh, the op-ed is, Principal's Death Shows That Schools Are Focusing on the Wrong Thing. And uh, it has to do with Tasha's personal friend, Richard Bilkstow, who was, uh, as you know, who committed suicide. It's an international case now. It's taken on international proportions. And the incident surrounding it is being investigated by the Ontario Ministry of Education. Also, the Toronto District School Board has engaged the services of an outside investigative organization. Meanwhile, the DEI facilitator, I don't really tell the whole story here. I'm going to let Tasha do that. The head of the Kojo Institute says she welcomes the investigation and challenges what is alleged to have occurred to the DEI training session, suggesting right-wing media are attempting to use the incident to discredit DEI training. Um, Tasha Carradine is uh, with us, and she's been named to Canada's top 100 most powerful women, a principal with Navigator Limited, strategic advice and communications firm. She's a lecturer at McGill University, an author, and a broadcaster. First of all, how do you find time for all that? <laughs> well, it's, uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> and you're a mother? <laughs> a lot of hats. You've got, you got a lot of hats, too. Yeah, no, I mean, the first time that, well, I, I, yeah, I wear, I wear one hat, just wear different angles. <laughs> but <laughs> There you go. <laughs> when I when I first talked to you uh, some years ago, I thought, well, here's somebody who's going to be really great in media, somebody who's going to be really really great in in radio, and that you you're doing so much. I'm I'm so impressed, Tasha. So impressed. Well, thank you, thank you very much. So please, your perspective. Richard was your friend. Yes. So. 
Hello? Yes. Go ahead. Oh, just, 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 you could have... no, the story, the story your way. Okay. So um, I met Richard on the set of The Agenda. Uh, all of us are familiar with that. Steve Pakin's show on TVO, where both of us were there to talk about a school lottery system that the Toronto District School Board had implemented for specialized schools. And we were both opposed to the changes that brought in this lottery. And so we met there and um, debated the issue. And after that, um, I felt quite passionate about it. My daughter is going into the TDSB next year, well, this year coming up. And Richard was a principal there for 24 years. And so I became involved with a group of parents and educators who were concerned about the, the changes to the, to the system of admission to these schools. And we worked together to help present deputations and other things to the school board to make this, our voices heard. And in the course of that, Richard told me he had a lawsuit. And um, he asked for my help because as a friend, uh, you know, I, I do this, I do this work, but, it, you know, in my professional life, but as a friend, I also have some knowledge, like he said, of media. So I said, well, I'll help you because media were getting interested in the story. And so he wanted some help navigating that. And so I was working with his lawyer and him helping him to do that. And in the course of that, it became obvious he was very, very anxious and concerned about it. But none of us really had a sense of how bad it was. Um, he had gone through these sessions, these DEI sessions in 2021, and they had at the time resulted in him really falling into uh, depression. He had anxiety. He had insomnia. He was so debilitated by them because he felt that not only had he been shamed in front of 200 of his peers for, for no valid reason, but he also had been let down by the school board he served for 24 years. And as a result, at the time, he went to workers' compensation because he was off work for two, two and a half months, I believe it was, um, due to the stress that he had experienced as a result of these sessions. And he won. They said he was bullied, harassed, intimidated during these, um, the course of this, this sessions that were organized by the TDSB. And he won an award, but he wanted also an apology from the school board. He wanted um, compensation for moral injuries. So he sued them. And this lawsuit is now the one that um, people are talking about that is, you know, against the TDSB for this. And in the course of all this, um, his family said that he was unable to recover from the stress and these incidents continue to plague him and he succumbed to this distress. And uh, that's what happened a couple of weeks ago. And everyone is, who knew him is, is shocked and horrified and never wants this to happen again to anybody. Yeah, condolences to you and the family. Thank and you. You're losing your friend, they're losing their family member under terrible circumstances. Now, um, suicide is, a, is a, it's just a very difficult thing to comprehend, to live with, and for the survivors, it's it's doubly difficult. So, so this was the DEI course facilitator who now says that uh, what's been reported if I understand correctly, I, I did leave a voicemail today uh, inviting them to come on the program. We haven't heard back. I could have done that sooner, but I did it today. And uh, the uh, the person who ran the course was also the founder of the Kojo Institute. And by the way, it's, it's news is that they claim as clients some organizations that say they never were um, never hired the company. Or, are, or no longer engage them. I'm not suggesting anything here by saying that. It's just what, what, what's being reported. But the, 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 the facilitator of the course says, this is just a story that's being manipulated by right-wing media to discredit DEI, you say. No, not at all. Um, this is, 
it's it's a story that needs to be told to make sure that this type of DEI, the the, the humiliating or the humiliation type of DEI, does not happen because you don't make the world a better place for all people of all races by denigrating somebody, um, humiliating them, and calling them out when you know nothing about their story. This this was this happened on a Zoom of two hundred people, you know, during the pandemic. Like situate yourself back at the time. Everyone was in their house. Everyone was slightly you know, stressed to begin with. Yeah. Um, and when Richard objected during the course of his Zoom, and, you know, the, the tapes don't lie. Um, we have heard the tapes. Uh, and he objected because um, he had taught in the United States. He had worked and lived there. And he objected to the notion that the U.S. is fundamentally more racist than Canada. And the, the, the instructor had cited her experiences to say that Canada has not dealt with its racism the way the U.S. has. And so he objected to this and said, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's really the case. And she shut him down and said, we are here to talk about anti-black racism, but you and your whiteness think that you can tell me what's really going on for black people. How does that help anyone? How does that attitude help anyone? How does that, and, and this is fundamentally the thing is, how does this kind of training framed in that, in that way help more black kids graduate from school? How does it help more Latin, um, uh, Latinx or Latino children who are also not graduating at the same rate as white and South a- and East Asian rather students graduate from school. It does nothing. And this is what I find objectionable is that the type of training that was done here does not sensitize people. It demonizes people. It divides people. You can sensitize people to issues and put in place policies that help children from backgrounds that are not succeeding as well in school to do better. But this is not the way to do it. And so this is what this is what the story is. It's not about right wing media. It's not about it's about a course that was given that never should have been framed this way. And that it, was, it was just a bad way to do this. And it was bullying. And, and bullying is never okay, right? It doesn't matter what color you are. No, absolutely. Bullying is never okay. I've heard some programs on bullying, and it destroys people, destroys them. It really does. But kids, you know, bullied at eight and nine years of age, when they're in their 40s and their 50s, they would call in, and they would still be in tears about what happened to them when they were kids. You heard, did I hear you say that you heard audio of this session, Yes. There is audio of the sessions, yes, um, that has been played to media. I'm not sure where the audio is. The, the, you know, the lawsuit has audio attached to it. Mm-hmm. My understanding is I don't know what's been submitted. I'm not the legal counsel on this. But there, the sessions themselves, and the Toronto Star said they also heard the sessions, and there was an article written about it and cited things from the sessions that, yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what the facilitator said. Um, she also... You know, applauded herself for calling out this man, um, saying that, you know, this was a real-life example of someone supporting white supremacy. You know, to be told that you're essentially a white supremacist is devastating, especially to someone like Richard, who had himself during his life faced discrimination and fought it for other people, other students, students he taught in inner-city schools. Like, it was just devastating. And again, it was the pandemic. Everyone was at home. Nobody could go out and network and fight back against this, right? This was said in front of your colleagues, and it was a stressful environment where everyone felt that, you know, they were invited to pile on, and they did. And then the, the Zoom shuts off, and you're sitting there in your home in the dark going, oh my gosh, I've just been like, my career has just been torched. And that was how he felt, um, and legitimately so. And others people, the, the WSIB cited other people in the actual sessions with him who confirmed those things were said and confirmed they also felt very uncomfortable with the tone that the facilitator took. 
Um, Tasha, are you satisfied with the way the provincial government is handling this? The education minister says there's going to be an investigation. TDSB, the Toronto District School Board, which was who was the or which was the employer of uh, Richard, the Toronto District School Board has hired a company that, uh, from what I understand, doesn't usually do this kind of work. Is it been doing, is it being handled properly? Um, well, I don't know how the province is going to be handling exactly. Um, a number of us in the, the community, the group that had been working with Richard and friends, we would like to know how because we feel it's important for voices to be heard in that process. It's not clear what the process is. I, I'm glad the minister is going to be looking into it, but we, we have yet to see how that inquiry or that investigation will go. I don't think the school board should be hiring and paying public dollars to an investigative firm that, by the way, it's an international investigative firm. They inter- investigate criminal elements, criminal wrongdoing. That's a curious choice. It is a very curious choice. The investigator in question is highly regarded and reputable, but in a field that has nothing to do with HR, DEI, nothing. So what are they investigating exactly? Uh, Is this for the lawsuit? Is this to, I don't know, to defend the school board? That's what it seems like to me looking at it. And that's not what this is about. I don't think the school board should be investigating itself. It makes no sense. The province has said they will investigate. The province is the one who should be doing the investigation and they should be bringing in, if they need expertise, bring it in. But expertise to see what happened here. What was the chain of approvals for this, uh, for this contract, for example? What happened after Richard complained and nothing was done? That's where things fell apart. Had the TDSB addressed this, had they rectified it, he would probably still be here. Because that's all he wanted. He wanted the school board to, t- to have his back, and they did not. So that's the piece that has to be looked at, is why was he, why was he as an instructor not supported by the school board? Yeah. Much more to come. A difficult segue here. I want to ask you uh, to wear another one of your hats and talk to us about politics. Can we do that? We can always talk about politics. The Trudeau government, according to the most recent polling, looks like they're in a... Uh, significantly difficult position here, uh, sliding badly with voters across the country. What are you, how are you reading this? Well, I'm reading it as fatigue with this government and um, people being angry about the economic situation so many of them are facing. I mean, you're, you're seeing a 10-point gap. It is the biggest gap that um, we've seen in polling uh, in about, I think, six months, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the I think the, the sense is that this government is tired, um, and even though inflation is dropping, interest rates are still going up. And we've got to realize that inflation was so bad in the last two years that you know prices today might not be rising as fast, but they rose so quickly. So now people are, two years in, paying significantly more for groceries, for everyday items, and there are still shortages of things like you can't buy a car. Good luck finding you know <laughs> new cars and even used cars and things, and people have a sense that things are not great, mm-hmm. right? And the government's paying the price for that. I think that, you know, that that frustration has set in, which explains a lot of how the cabinet shuffle played out and who was put in which positions. It wasn't a shuffle. It was an explosion. <laughs> a cabinet blow-up? Yeah, a cabinet blow-up. First of all, why do we need 39 cabinet ministers? You know, it's uh, it's a big cabinet. It's, it's like a it's like a giant wardrobe. It's not even really a cabinet. It's, <laughs> it's yeah. a giant wardrobe. It's an IKEA wardrobe. Pat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So now Pierre Polyev, his performance. You didn't support his leadership campaign for the Conservative Party. Are, are you uh, are you satisfied with the job he's doing? 
Um, I think he's doing some things right and others not. Um, I think that he was hammering, and when he hammers on the economic message, I think that is that makes a lot of sense from the conservative perspective and also from his own perspective. Um, I think it's something that he's always been. He's very on message in terms of, uh, you know, restraining spending, lower taxes, um, better. You know, I think more judicious spending as well, as opposed to just spending on new programs. So I think that's very consistent for him. What, where the conservatives went off message again in this case, um, you know, it just it sort of blew a lot of people's minds online. Rechi Valdez um, was named to the cabinet. She's from Mississauga Streets, uh, Streetsville, and um, she was named as a new minister of small business. And the tweet that went out from the conservatives was that, you know, she supported vaccine mandates. Okay, guys, uh, you know, the pandemic is done. Um, <laughs> it's done. <laughs> we're all trying to forget it ever happened. And to bring that back, it's like, okay, let's animate the base and get them mad about her. Come on. You know, it, it, this is what I find, the sort of pettiness that sometimes just seeps back in. And you're like, okay, no, move forward, hit the issues that really matter. So, you know, and, and Pierre's makeover, I'm, I'm not 100% sold on it personally. I, I think that, you know, it's cosmetic sure but it shows that it shows the conservatives are trying to, to to change up and and i don't know be have them be more i don't know appealing and, and visually appeal. i don't know exactly what it's supposed to do but it it also became a talking point right and again i don't think that's helpful i think focusing on the issues that really matter to people bread and butter that stuff is helpful that is so important people have to know something about you they have to feel comfortable with you have a sense of who you are before we get into the election campaign. Tasha, thank you so much for the time. And again, condolences on the loss of your friend. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Take good care. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.